I was recently in Mexico with our, with our team, and we were building a school down there. And, and when we arrived at the job site the first day, we found out we weren't actually building a separate school. We were building two classrooms onto an existing high school area. And I started to wonder, well, why are we doing this? Why did the government say to us, this is our area of greatest need in the San Cateen Valley? And then I found out that there are 500 teenagers in the area where we built two classrooms who are desiring to go to school, but there is no space for them. So they're having to go out and work the fields. And so by building these two classrooms, we've, we've allowed somewhere between 60 and 80 teenagers to start to engage in education at a level beyond elementary and to bring them out of the fields and to bring them into a school classroom where they can learn. And hopefully that learning will help break the poverty cycle for them. So I want to thank all the team that went down with me and Sylvia and built. And by building, we're giving hope. Because, you know, the people in the San Cateen Valley where we have our mission, they need the life and the hope that Jesus can bring. The people in Brussels this morning need to know the life and the hope that Jesus can bring. I went to Los Angeles for some meetings after, after our time in Mexico, and it was interesting. I, we were staying in this little budget hotel in downtown L.A., and I walked about five blocks every morning to get coffee at Starbucks. And on the first morning, I noticed as I walked in Los Angeles that people would never look you in the eye. And so I started to make it a project to look them in the eye, to stare at them, to annoy them. And you know what they did every time is they still wouldn't engage me. They still wouldn't look me in the eye. They looked down. It's like they're in a, in a prison. They're disconnected. And I thought to myself, the people in Los Angeles really need the life and the hope that Jesus can bring. But it isn't just true in Vicente and in Brussels and in Los Angeles. It's also true right here in Victoria. And it's true of all of us in this room. All of us need to know in a very real way the life and the hope that Jesus can bring. And there's no Sunday better to speak about the life and the hope that Jesus can bring than on Easter Sunday. And so let me read to you the Easter story from Mark's gospel. It starts in Mark chapter 15, verse 42, and I'll read through the first eight verses of Mark chapter 16. It goes like this. It was preparation day. It was the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked if Jesus had already died. When he had learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? 
But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Jesus was dead. The Roman government was relieved because the guy who had sparked so much civil unrest was no longer a problem. The religious leaders of the day were happy because their competition had been eliminated. And then on Sunday morning early, the women who had observed Jesus' death, the ones who had stood by as his body were placed in the tomb, went to perform one final act of kindness. Jesus had died on the day before Sabbath on what is known as the day of preparation. On the day of preparation, you prepared for the Sabbath. If you need to get firewood or oil for your lamp or, or groceries, you would do that on the day of preparation so you would not have to work on the Sabbath. And it was on the afternoon of the day of preparation that, that Joseph of Arimathea brought Jesus' body down from the cross. Now generally what would happen when someone had died is the women would take the body and they would prepare it for burial, they would wash it, they would anoint it with fragrances and oil, and then they'd wrap it in fine linen cloth. But it was preparation day. The Sabbath was about to begin, so they hurried to bury Jesus. It had to be done by sundown before the Sabbath began. So Jesus was quickly wrapped in a cloth and placed in a tomb. Now, a tomb would have been a rock hillside, and the tomb would have been carved out of this rock hillside. It would have had a small entrance, probably about a meter high, and a rock would have been rolled in front of the tomb after the person was buried there. Now, move with me ahead to the day after the Sabbath, the first day of the week. Three women headed to the tomb. They were carrying spices. They were carrying spices. They went to anoint a dead body. Notice what they said to one another. Who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? That question showed an, an absence of expectation. Please understand, these women had absolutely no expectation that Jesus would rise from the dead. They went to anoint a dead body. In the ancient world, some people believed that when you died, you went out like a candle. In fact, there was a, a, a popular ancient tombstone epitaph that read this. I was not, I was, I am not, I don't care. Isn't that brutal? That's one way to look at life. Others believed there was an underworld called Hades, and, and when you died, departed spirits went there. The Jewish people, however, had a completely different view of the afterlife, one that revolved around the idea of a resurrection that was around long before Jesus. The Jewish people believed that there was a God who created all things and that one day 
this God would step in. He would forgive the sins of the people. He would establish justice. He would end suffering. He would restore creation. And then he would resurrect his people to enjoy this new creation. They believed that when the resurrection happened, it would be done en masse for all God's people, and it would be done at the end of history. What does this have to do with the resurrection of Jesus? Nobody, nobody in Israel would have ever thought that one individual would be resurrected in the middle of history. The Jewish people believed in a future general resurrection. They had no concept of an individual rising from the dead. Thus, when Jesus died, none of his followers expected him to remain anything but dead. And that's why when you read the Gospels, you understand why they were so frightened, why they hid. Because they thought it was all over. There were many messianic movements in the first century. And most of the leaders to these messianic movements were crucified like Jesus did, was. And after these messianic leaders died, their movements collapsed. All of them, except one. And instead of a collapsing, this one exploded. And in the course of 300 years, it had spread through the entire Roman Empire. Why? Well, when the women arrived at the tomb, the stone was out of place. It had been rolled away. So they entered the tomb. They ducked down, and they entered the tomb, and they saw a man in white. And this man said what angels often say to people, do not be alarmed. Are you kidding me? Put yourself in those women's shoes. You'd be scared spitless. You're expecting to see a dead body. You peek inside of this tomb and there's an angel. And the angel says, do not be afraid. And then look what the angel went on to say. You are looking for Jesus and Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. He is not here. He has risen. Those words changed everything. On Friday, Jesus absorbed the worst the world could throw at him. Beatings, a crucifixion, which was a horrible way to die. And on the cross, he absorbed all the sin and all the brokenness of mankind, past, present, future. But that was Friday. On Sunday, he showed that nothing, not evil, not death, could withstand the power of a loving God. He has risen, and because he has risen, Jesus has shown us that he has the authority and the power to break the bonds of sin and to give life to whoever will come to him. Because he has risen, Jesus has demonstrated that his power is greater than the power of death. Because he has risen, Jesus has demonstrated that he has won the victory over God's enemy, Satan, and evil. You see, here's the day, I say this to our church all the time, at the cross and then on Easter Sunday at the resurrection when Jesus rose from the dead, 
That was God's D-Day. It was like back in World War II when those forces, the Allied forces, landed on the beaches of Normandy. Everyone knew that if the Allied forces established the beachhead, that victory was theirs. It was only a matter of time. And that's exactly what happened at the cross and then at the resurrection. That was God's D-Day. Evil, Satan, sin, death, all defeated. And one day there will be God's victory day. Victory is assured and one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth when all of God's victory will be realized in a perfect way. But we live in this in-between time between God's D-Day and God's victory day. And living in the in-between time, just like the Allied forces going from Normandy to winning the war in Germany, there's battles to fight and there's disease to deal with and there's all the other stuff of a fallen world in which we live. But listen, Jesus has defeated all of that. Because he has risen, all the difficulties in this life need to be seen as transient. Real, yes. Challenging, yes. Painful, for sure. But they don't get the last word Jesus does. And that was the message that those women needed to hear on that Sunday. And that's the message the people in the San Catine Valley need to hear And the people in Brussels need to hear. And the people in Victoria need to hear. And the people in the Middle East need to hear. And around the world need to hear that Jesus has risen. Listen, death doesn't get the final word. Jesus does. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Remember, I said this last year, Jesus messed up every funeral he went to including his own. And he did that because Jesus has the power over death. And in our lives, death doesn't get the final word. Jesus does. Disease doesn't have to have the final word in your life anymore because as you turn your eyes to the risen Jesus, as you focus on him, not your circumstances, not your disease, you will realize that the risen Jesus, not cancer, is going to get the final word in your life. Addiction does not have to have the final word in your life. The risen Jesus said he had come to set the captives free and he wants to set you free from whatever you are addicted to. Addiction does not have to have the final word in your life. If you choose to follow the risen Jesus, he wants to set you free. Stress and anxiety don't have to have the final word in your life as you walk this planet. Listen, Jesus said, I've come to me, all you are weary, who are stressed, who are anxious and burdened, and I will give you rest. Don't let stress and anxiety have the final word in your life. Let the risen Jesus have the final word in your life. Some of you are here this morning and you're in relational heartbreak. I'm here to say to you this morning, you don't have to let heartbreak have the final word in your life. Jesus said that he came to bind up the brokenhearted. He's come to heal your heartbreak. He's come to heal your life. Don't let heartbreak have the final word in your life. Let Jesus have the final word in your life. He's come to set you free. He's come to give you life. 
Christ has risen. That is the central proclamation of the greatest victory in all of human history. If there's anything in this world worthy of celebration, it's that. It's Christ has risen. I don't know if you've been watching the news this last weekend, but in Vancouver they had a big sporting event, right? Mexico versus Canada, we lost. That was expected. But we're not soccer players. We're playing against Mexico. What are you talking? They're going to kill us. They're lucky the score was so good. We didn't get blown out. Anyway, that's beside the point. Hack me about that later. Anyway, so, but did you notice, if you saw the news clip, how pumped people were about the soccer game? The Mexican fans were going nuts. The Canadian fans were trying to go nuts and be hopeful. I wonder, though, we watch that, and we see how people get excited. And, and, if, and if the Canucks ever possibly would get into the playoffs, we might, you might see Canuck fans get, I'm sorry, it's true. You might, you might see them get excited. But if you ever ask yourself, as Christ followers, do we get as pumped up about the fact that Christ is risen as we do about sporting events? It's strange to me that we feel freer to shout and to cheer and express joy at sports games than we do at church. Christ has risen. He has conquered evil. He has conquered death. That is something to celebrate. We were in Mexico recently, as I mentioned at the beginning, and when we're in Mexico, we go to this little church called Casa Church, and they know how to celebrate. And what's interesting is when our group goes there, they know how to celebrate. In fact, here's Kenan right here celebrating. There he is. He's celebrating. They're worshiping in Latin. He has no idea what they're saying, but he is worshiping with them. And it's not just, here, here's Keith Johnson, one of the guys on our leadership team. I thought he was going to give himself a heart attack, but he's there. And he's celebrating. Folks, we have something to celebrate. Jesus has risen. The church service should never be like a funeral because every single week we are here to celebrate the risen Jesus. Right? Oh, you clap. Now I want to see you celebrate, right? Verse 6, the angel said this, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who is crucified. He is risen. Now, now look at verse 7. This is really, really important. Look at verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Those women were entrusted with the most momentous message that would ever be spoken from one human being to another. He has risen. And that the fact that this message was given to women was really, really significant because in ancient Israel, women were of such low status that they were not regarded as credible witnesses. In fact, they were not even allowed to give testimony in court. If you committed a crime and the only witnesses to your crime were women, chances are very good that you would go off scot-free because women were not credible witnesses. Sellus, the Greek philosopher who lived in the second century A.D., wrote this. Christianity can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women, and we all know that women are hysterical. I'm just reading it. <laughs> Do you know what that means? It doesn't mean women are hysterical. I, here's what it means. 
It means if, if Mark is making up the story to get a movement off the ground, he would never, ever have written women into the story as the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' empty tomb. The only plausible explanation for why all four Gospels say that the first witnesses of the empty tomb were women is that the first witnesses of the empty tomb were women. It gives the story credibility. Christ has risen. And then it says this in verse 8. Look at how the women respond. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and, 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 and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Trembling and bewildered, they flee. What a strange ending. If I'm Mark, I'm like, hey, went away really courageous and right. I mean, they, they went away scared. In fact, this ending was so strange to the early church that what happened is within centuries of the writing of God, uh, Mark's gospel, the ending was um, uh, amended by the early church to include two other endings. They said it can't end here. And so the early church wrote what is called the shorter ending, which wraps up the account by insisting women told others that Jesus appeared to his disciples. And then there's the other ending that someone wrote, which is the longer ending that includes 12 verses that recount several appearances by Jesus and also a lengthy commission. Yet almost every scholar, in fact, I'd say probably every scholar of worth, says that Mark's gospel originally ended in verse 8 with the women trembling and bewildered and running from the scene. But, but, that's not the end of the women's story. If you go over to Matthew's gospel, we see that as the woman ran to tell the disciples, Jesus appeared to them. Look at verse Matthew chapter 28, verse 9. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. Now, can you imagine? You're scared. You're running. Your heart's pounding. You're running, and Jesus appears and says, greetings. Hi. Ah. You probably freak out. But beyond that, the risen Jesus appeared to more than 500 people. The one they saw die on the cross, whose body was put in a tomb, appeared before them. And their encounter with the risen Jesus transformed their fear into faith. And that small group of confused, frightened people became a courageous, faith-filled, bold community that would turn the world upside down. You see, an encounter with the risen Jesus is transformational. So why did Mark choose to close his book in this way? I think it's because Mark wanted us to enter the story. By entering, ending the way he did, Mark is leaving us standing beside that empty tomb. And he's forcing us to decide how will we respond to the risen Jesus so how will you respond to the risen Jesus? How will you respond to the angel's words, he has risen? How will you respond? One of the most well-known verses in the Bible is John 3.16. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
God the Father loved his creation so much that he sent Jesus into the world to live among us and then to hang on a cross to die for us so that whoever, you know that's whoever means whoever, that means anyone, anyone, so that whoever believes in Jesus will never die but will have eternal life. Now, when we think of eternal life, we think of life after death, but in the Bible, eternal means an ending, not after It's not just referring to life after death. It's referring also to life here and now. You see, Jesus came into the world to give us life. The Bible says that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. In him is life. In him is wholeness. In him is reconciliation. In him is restoration. In him is freedom. He wants to set you free from that which is holding you in bondage. Jesus burst out of the grave, and Jesus desires to burst into your life, will you allow him to do that? Maybe this morning you're saying, I need that. I need Jesus to burst into my life. How can that happen? I think the invitation that Jesus gives us in the first chapter of Mark that says this. He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And then he says in verse 17, come follow me. Repent has a lot of baggage to it. Do you know what repent means? It simply means to turn around and go a different direction. It means instead of following your own selfish stuff, instead of following culture's values, instead of following um, other gods, you turn and you follow Jesus. And you turn to him and you say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to place my trust in you. I want my allegiance to go to you. I want to be a follower of yours. That's what it means to repent. It means turn from seeking your own things and following other gods to say, I'm going to follow Jesus. And, and then the word believe. Can I say this to you? The word believe means more than just giving mental assent to a bunch of facts. The word believe means to place your trust in something. Years and years ago, I I was part of a a, a rescue team that did cliff rescues. This is not a picture of me. That is not me, but I'm just showing you the idea there. And the idea was we would rappel off cliffs to rescue people. So the first time when I was being trained that I was going to rappel, they put me in the harness. They put me at the edge of the cliff. Sorry for my back. And they say, now step over. Uh Aha. (laughs) not so much, long way down, I'm on a rope. And the guy looked at me and he said this to me, do you trust me? Here's the deal. I believed, because I'd seen other guys go over the edge, I believed that the ropes and this guy would hold on to me. I gave mental assent to the fact that I probably wouldn't kill myself. But listen, I didn't really trust him until I took that step off that cliff. And when I took that step off that cliff, I was all in, trust me. I'm all in now to trusting him. And that's what the Bible means when it says to believe. It means that I'm going to place my trust in Jesus. I'm going to go all into following him. I'm going, to, I'm going to lean into who he is. I'm going to follow him and his ways. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust what he says. I'm going to trust in the risen Jesus. So Jesus says, I want you to repent, I want you to believe, and then I want you to follow. You begin the journey. When you say, I'm all in, and you take that step off that cliff, you begin your journey of following Jesus, which is a daily journey. It's a matter of walking with him every day 
and growing and learning in your relationship with him. Let me, let me ask you this morning, have you ever taken that step off the cliff? You may know about Jesus. A lot of people know about Jesus. Knowledge, as someone I know used to say all the time, is not the problem. Commitment's the problem. Have you committed? Have you taken the step off the cliff and say, Jesus, I'm all in to following you. I want to be your follower. I want to turn from going my own way. I want to turn from seeking other gods, and I want to seek you, Jesus. Have you made that decision? If you haven't, today's the day to do it. What better day to do it than on Easter Sunday? Christ is risen, right? He's risen. What better day to make the decision to step off the cliff than today? Will you make that decision? You can make that decision just by saying, I'm going to do it. You can make that decision by praying to God as we sing quietly. You can just pray. Pray is just talking to him. You can do it quietly, praying to God and saying, God, I want to follow you. But will you make the decision to walk off the cliff today and say, Jesus, I'm all in to following you. I'm going to make the commitment. And I'm going to know your risen life in my life, which will transform everything. Can I encourage you? Decide today to do that. Decide to make that decision and go all in. Let me pray for you and then we're gonna sing and then I'll have some closing comments. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness. Thank you that you are the risen Jesus. I pray all through this room today there are people that need to make that decision. They need to step off the cliff. Some of them have been coming to church for a long time. Knowledge is not the problem. Commitment's the problem. They never stepped off the cliff and said, Jesus, I'm gonna change my ways. I'm gonna seek you. I'm gonna trust in you. I'm gonna go all into following you. There are people here who are visiting. They've been dragged here. They came here to keep the family peace, Jesus. But they've just heard about you and something inside saying, I need to make that decision. God, I pray this morning that they would take that step of trust and step off that cliff. God, as we sing now, may people respond to you. May they say yes to following you. In Jesus' name, amen.